Welcome to the Creditors Bargain Podcast, a show where I discuss corporate insolvency law with guests who are academics or practitioners from different jurisdictions. I'm your host, Akshaya Kamalnath, a senior lecturer at the Australian National University College of Law. In today's episode, I speak with Miles Bayless, a solicitor in Brisbane. We discuss his article, Virtual Assets, Real Insolvency Issues, which was published in the Banking and Finance Law Review. Thanks very much for joining me today, Miles. No problem. Thank you for having me. So can we get started by um, talking a little about what virtual assets are in the first place, because not all of insolvency lawyers uh, are fully up to speed with this. Yeah, sure. So most simply, I can say that a virtual asset is a representation of value in um, cyberspace. So that can take a lot of forms. Um, The most commonly known one that I think everyone would know of would be cryptocurrency. But it can be a bit broader. So there's a variety of things that can be a virtual asset, such as what we call tokens, which is sort of similar to cryptocurrency, but does a bit more broader stuff. Um, So one of the emerging things at the moment is called the NFT, a non-fungible token, which represents ownership of a digital asset. So it's not quite used like cryptocurrency, which is used as basically a currency, but it contains some rights to another form of virtual virtual asset. So quite broadly, I would even go as far as to say it's just virtual property, property that's existing in cyberspace that can be assigned a value and that you can personally control, just like we would tangible property. Thank you. That's uh, kind of uh, interesting to think of NFTs in the space. As far as I know, I don't think we've had NFTs in insolvency cases yet, have we? <laughs> Not yet, but I've seen that um, various tokens are getting used quite broadly. Um, like recently, I was reading an article about the transfer of Lionel Messi from uh, to the new, yeah. his new club, Paris and German. Apparently, they have um, a fan token which allows fans to be involved in the um, running of the club to various degrees. Like they can buy these tokens and exchange them so that they can get a message on the captain's armband or something like that. So pretty much everyone's getting in on the action. So I don't think it'll be long until we do see it go wrong, unfortunately. Yeah, so why not insolvency lawyers, right? Uh, But anyway, I wanted to talk to you, speaking of cases, your article mentions a number of interesting cases already, if not NFTs, but uh, about other virtual assets. Uh, Can you tell us about some of these cases and how it's showing us challenges to insolvency law? Yeah, so there's been a lot of different cases around the world um, dealing with sort of various things. The predominance of the cases have sort of dealt with whether cryptocurrency is property or not. Um, I would say that argument is sort of becoming more and more academic as more jurisdictions are sort of adopting it either through judicial recognition or express legislative recognition. Like in New Zealand, there was the case 
last year where they recognized um, that crypto was a form of property. Um, and here in Australia, we sort of, we don't quite have it, but I would say if there was a case, we would recognize it. Otherwise, pretty much all of the regulators such as ASIC um, and AFSA have already recognized that it is property that can be dealt with, even if it's not fully recognized through legislation. Um, one of the other, some of the other more important cases have dealt with issues that would be pretty important to insolvency practitioners. So one of the first ones I'd like to talk about is the Mt. Gox case. So Mt. Gox was a Bitcoin trading exchange. Um, an exchange for the purposes of Bitcoin is very similar to a stock exchange or share exchange that we'd have for regular shares or stocks. Um, you just basically buy and sell from there, but using cryptocurrency instead of shares or equities. So this one was based in Japan and it was a very, very large exchange. At one point, I think it was dealing with about 70% of the world's Bitcoin trades, which at the time was still quite a lot. Um, so what happened to that exchange was that it got hacked by hackers and it lost a lot of Bitcoins. I think about 850,000, which was valued at $473 million US at the time. So um, because there was no Bitcoins to exchange, the company just basically had to declare insolvency and file for the various, the various protections under Japanese insolvency law. So um, originally they tried to do a rehabilitation, which is similar to um, the Australian turnaround or um, reconstruction, but eventually that just had to change into liquidation due to some various issues. Um, as any insolvency practitioner would probably know, insolvency, uh, getting to the actual distribution is quite a long involved process. So in between when the hack happened and the original filings were made, um, the value of the Bitcoins increased quite substantially. So um, I think I have it here. Um, oh, well, I don't have it on me at the moment, but there's a very good chart that shows the value of the um, price at the beginning of the insolvency proceedings up to um, when the distribution could have happened. And it was a very, very sharp increase in value, basically to the point where um, the company could have actually come out of insolvency because it was able to satisfy all its debt and still have um, they still have extra money to pay out all of its creditors and pay out all of the people that were investing in the company. But that gives a pretty much, that gives sort of a unique situation because um, I've scoured the internet to find any situation similar to that. And I can't basically, I think the only one where I've ever seen that was another software company in America. Um, but that was just bidding on the assets, um, not the actual asset itself increasing in value so much. So a third party was just buying that, not um, the assets that were already held increasing. So it was sort of a question like, how do we deal with this fairly to the creditors, um, especially those that were the people holding these Bitcoins in the exchange? Because that's their Bitcoin. If the company hadn't been hacked, there'd been no problems. Their, their Bitcoin should have increased in value up to this point. So 
theoretically they should own that value, not the company, and it shouldn't really be used to pay off creditors. So what should we really do here? Um, so basically, um, they just kept it into an insolvency proceedings to avoid that. They kept it into a liquidation proceeding in Japan to um, prevent the management of now Gox getting the benefit of that surplus value. Um, I don't think, I haven't found an adequate translation of the Japanese um, judgment, but I would guess there's probably some underlying premise that um, bad directors shouldn't really get the benefit of these assets or um, increases in value, even though it might not have been their fault, but it's probably unfair to the creditors that they miss out on that value that should, that does for all intents and purposes belong to them. Um, so yeah, that's very demonstrative of the price volatility of cryptocurrency. So um, anyone that follows cryptocurrency would see it's quite up and down. Um, it can increase in value quite significantly and it can also drop very precipitously um, and basically ruin someone if that's what they're banking on. Um, yeah, and so the next case that I'd talk about is um, called Quadriga CX. So that was a, another exchange operated in Canada. Um, quite a lot of the cryptocurrency cases relate to exchanges because it's a lot more complex than dealing with someone, an individual person that's just holding the cryptocurrency or maybe even an individual company that's holding it um, because the exchange has just a lot more creditors, both secured and unsecured, um, and people with interests in the assets they would have, whereas a company wouldn't, or an individual um, have a less complex estate. So Quadriga, again, um, exchange, exchange operator of Canada, um, was a bit more, it was different to the Mt. Gox exchange because the Quadriga exchange Basically, it seemed to be operated by a single person. So one guy who the, the CEO, it was operated entirely out of his laptop. Um, and this guy, he wasn't permanently based in Canada. He quite often traveled around the world doing various things. Um, and the problem happened, <laughs> the pro a problem arose because um, he went overseas and he died. So, <laughs> Um, he held all the passwords to the exchange um, and his laptop and everything. So when there's no director of the company, <laughs> what do you do then? Um, he didn't have them in written form or anything either. It was all up here in his head. So <laughs> there was really no practical way to get this unless um, one of the um, insolvency practitioners or creditors had a way to communicate with the dead, which I don't think really holds up in court very often. Um, so then that resulted in the company experiencing a liquidity crisis due to being unable to satisfy um, accreditors or investors' request withdrawal because there was no one to approve it, no one to do anything with it, even though they were able to appoint a successor to the company. Um, again, still no access to any of the infrastructure, so they couldn't actually physically do anything. Um, so that resulted in um, application pursuant to 
the Companies Creditors Arrangements Act in the Nova Scotia Supreme Court. Um, and then uh, the court had the very difficult task of working out how are we actually going to do anything with this because there's technically no operating business in terms of physical assets, employees, suppliers, or secured creditors. It was just one guy and a laptop and the, the World Wide Web. Um, and so that guy also didn't maintain bank accounts. Well, at least none that they could really find or keep adequate records, such as what we would have to keep under the various jurisdictions, um, companies acts. Uh, so the court did make orders um, that any person in possession of the debtor's property, including third party payment providers, were to grant immediate and continued access to the property, sort of a way to circumvent the inability to access the company infrastructure. Um, that also presented some problems because um, a lot of these third parties were unknown or in other jurisdictions that might not necessarily have to comply with um, the orders of a court in Canada. So that's, again, another problem for insolvency practitioners. For a lot of jurisdictions, it would probably be no problem, say, an Australian-New Zealand um, exchange, if that went insolvent, there's pretty established recognition schemes between the two jurisdictions. So that would be relatively simple. Um, and for non-complying parties, it would be a pretty straightforward manner, matter of um, dealing with those people. But when it is in a jurisdiction that's not really as cooperative or a bit more protective of their um, citizens, that can present a lot of problems. Um, or basically when the people are unknown, how do you find them? Because cryptocurrency and blockchain, a lot of it is really based on secrecy and anonymous. Yeah. anonymous. So um, for practitioners where it's basically these assets can be all over the world at any place, the people holding them can be anywhere. They can be in the middle of nowhere in a very small country that does that has it can be in basically North Korea and how are we can access that because the jurisdiction doesn't comply with basically anyone yeah so so I think the second case really brings out the uh, cross jurisdictional issues right um, and we do have some sort of solutions to deal with cross-border issues in insolvency insolvency law even before virtual assets came into play does any of that uh, work well here or do we need a whole set of new rules? What do you think? I think that the um, sort of established in international insolvency recognitions and practices, are, mm, I'd say they're all right for what we have to deal with. Um, effectively, cryptocurrency isn't too drastically different to other forms of assets. Uh, mainly what the problem, the problematic part is whether we're dealing with jurisdictions that aren't compliant with those international conventions and um, processes or where we're dealing with jurisdictions that don't have the same recognition of cryptocurrency as property. Um, for example, I think it's still the case, but in Russia, they decided that cryptocurrency wasn't property for the purposes of a personal bankruptcy proceeding. 
So that would be a bit problematic if we had someone here in Australia that's a bankrupt that has cryptocurrency um, assets in Russia. We wouldn't really be able to enforce against that because um, that jurisdiction doesn't recognize it. So I think more what we need to do first, at least, is to sort of get um, maybe a sort of as close to uniform as possible um, definition or recognition of cryptocurrency or virtual assets across as many jurisdictions as possible to make it a bit easier to enforce those international um, those international practices and processes. Otherwise, yeah, we would probably need um, a different, more, <laughs> more focused or specific virtual asset recovery scheme. Um, we'd also, also the main issue like in Quadriga, we need to be able to, I need something to help us identifying these individuals that hold the property. Uh, we need to get, that might not be a jurisdictional issue, but may more be an issue dealing with the blockchains and the exchanges themselves. Um, that might require the else, all our jurisdictions to sort of team up against those um, exchanges or people to say, if you want to act legitimately in our jurisdictions, you need to comply with our laws. Um, but I don't know how effective that would be since um, cryptocurrency at least has its genesis in basically going against authority. Yeah, and you brought up this other point about vol volatility as well, right? Um, sudden volatility of virtual assets, how do we deal with that in insolvency if we're not actually, um, since we've not been used to such types of property, that's I think another question that um, we need to think about in insolvency more generally. Did you have any thoughts about that at all? Not to put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, I have actually been thinking about this. Um... Since cryptocurrencies are getting a bit more mainstream, there was, I've seen some actual, even companies are starting to purchase it as sort of their own treasury or investment scheme. For example, there's um, this company called MicroStrategy, I think it is in the US. Um, they quite happily announced that because interest rates um, aren't really returning anything, any kind of good money to them. They instead decided to invest that money into cryptocurrency and purchased, I think, about a million dollars worth of it um, on the basis that it has much more potential to increase in value. So, yeah, what we would do with, I think there's probably a lot um, of regulation that might necessarily be attached to that, like possibly the director's duties, whether investing in cryptocurrency against the context of how volatile it is, whether that is in the best interest of the company or whether that's a very speculative risk. Um, also, I suppose, for since a lot of investment banks and other banks are also starting to add cryptocurrency desks or packages and services, I think you'd also have to look at whether that fits within the responsible lending and investment 
um, regulations in the respective jurisdictions, whether um, those companies are properly informing and advising their customers. Um, yeah, there's a lot to yeah. deal with there. And even after the fact, when you have a insolvency of an exchange, like you were saying, what do you do? Who should benefit from that sudden increase in value? I think I've been looking at this uh, for a while as well. There are people have been flagging it as something that needs to be um we need a solution for it, but I guess we haven't really got there yet. But it uh, yeah. sounds like one of the key things in your discussion of the Mount Cox case that, that really kind of jumps out at you, right? The volatility issue. Yeah. And um, yeah, as, as you were discussing cross-border issues, maybe even in the context of Quadriga, perhaps not in a, if it was a bigger exchange, I was thinking about how, um, even if you didn't have laws about this, or the, you know, there was no case law recognizing cryptocurrency as um, property or anything, as we've seen um, cross-border so insolvency protocols sometimes where courts cooperate on things, uh, agree to cooperate on certain uh, issues in a certain way. I wonder if that can be like a ad hoc solution to things where you don't have rules like this, but maybe something to think about. Yeah, definitely. So did you have any other thoughts before I let you go? Um. Yeah, I think it's a very dynamic space, um, which isn't very well understood by anyone that's really in the position to regulate or supervise. Um, so we definitely do need to be paying pretty close attention to the practices in the area, especially because um, it's very dynamic and a lot of these people are quite um, anti-authority or anarchic in their practices so they don't want to come under the they don't want regulatory capture they want to be quite separate um i think especially as it's becoming quite a lot more mainstream in a lot of various areas we have to be we have to approach it very carefully otherwise um quite a lot of people can get hurt uh being too speculative or um just jumping in on the latest craze because as we've seen in quite a lot of instances in history, that um, a lot of these new crazes become a big bubble and then burst at the last moment when everyone's in it. And although there's a lot of people that probably might get angry about me saying it, I don't know quite how much staying power digital assets and cryptocurrency have. Um, maybe some of the bigger ones will stick around for a while as they as they are already quite integrated in the mainstream. But some of the smaller ones, they might quite they might be quite bubblish and will pop off at any given seconds. As we've seen, like crypt, even the big ones like Bitcoin and Ethereum, um, they go up in value, then they drop very suddenly, and they're very subject to. Um, anything happening in the market, like Elon Musk, he writes in his bio, I don't like Bitcoin, and that causes a few thousand dollars worth of drop. So unlike our initial share, like say I invest in Telstra, that's a telecommunications company, there's something underlying that. Telstra 
the Telstra share price will only really drop depending on what they do um, and what maybe the government might do, not just Although some internet celebrity to, or someone. We might want to qualify that a bit in this GameStop era, but yeah. I see your point. <laughs> but your conversation earlier on when we got started on uh, you were talking about nfts now that's really got me thinking about uh nfts in the insolvency space you're right it's it can happen any moment right yeah some, that'll be it, something to watch my out. article yeah my article was published at the end of 2020 and we're only eight months into 2021 yeah. and already nfts have become a huge thing big sporting companies are doing their own token so it just shows how dynamic that is because when i wrote the article i didn't even consider those things because yeah. it wasn't really a thing at that point yeah so time for a new article i guess all right <laughs> yeah it's just so dynamic <laughs> yeah but thanks so much for joining me today to discuss this really interesting issue and um i hope Listeners are curious enough, if you haven't already checked out the cases, uh, to check the fascinating uh, facts of some of these cases, particularly Quadriga, much more than we've discussed. There's, there's a lot of drama with those facts, right? Um, anyway, thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, there's it's a very long, very long judgment and it's quite in-depth, so I definitely recommend checking that one out. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much for joining me today. No problem. Thank you for having me. was Miles Baylis discussing his article, Virtual Assets, Real Insolvency Issues. I've added a link to that article in the show notes. I've also added a link to a case comment, The Law of Crypto Assets is the Law of the Horse, written by myself, which is a comment on the New Zealand case that we were discussing early on in the episode, which said that crypto assets should be considered property. But in the case note, I also discussed towards the end some implications for insolvency law, implications regarding uh, virtual assets. So I hope that's of interest as well. 